0: This is Doug Hathaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. The field of public health was thrust into the public eye with the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. With new scrutiny comes new opportunity to educate the public about public health itself. Before the outbreak, the de Beaumont Foundation launched an all-hands-on-deck effort to equip public health practitioners with tools to build communication skills and strategies. They're out with a new book called Talking Health. It's the first book in the COVID era with practical insights and tools for public health communication. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, We'll talk with Brian Castrucci, De Beaumont's president and CEO. He's an award winning epidemiologist who worked on the front lines of public health before building the De Beaumont Foundation into a leading voice in health philanthropy and public health practice. He'll tell us about this new book and lessons you can use to communicate about public health with maximum motivating power. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I know you're a passionate advocate for the field and the people of public health. Tell us your story. How did you come to devote your career to promoting public health?
1: So I, I was fortunate to find public health when I was still an undergrad. My parents were, were both nurses, and I had always wanted to do something in health, but not be clinical. And I was working in Atlanta in a summer internship, and someone brought me to a, a gun violence summit And I was like, what is this place that we're in? It's policy and it's health. And I love both those things. And they're like, this is a school of public health. And so I disappointed all my mentors who thought I would be a great (laughs) poli-sci professor and went to a school of public health for my graduate work and have been in love with it ever since. I, uh, you know, I'm 48 years old. So I was about eight years old when HIV and AIDS started. And again, with both of my parents being nurses, um, having... You know, a conversation about healthcare workers being at risk for this virus that has 100% mortality or near that, it just got me interested in all the aspects of health that are outside of the biological and the physiological. And what I know now, 30 years into, you know, the work I've done in, in public health is, you know, the workforce and the people who do this work, they're like, you know, when you're on a pier, you always see the pier and you know it's safe, but no one ever looks at the pilings below the water. That's who we are in public health. That's your public health workforce, and and right now those pilings they they've been beaten up a bit, and so y'all should really think about walking onto that pier without helping re- you know fortify those pilings.
0: I guess doing that is part of the big uh, investments that the De Beaumont Foundation is making in public health communication. Tell us about that. Why, why is that? What has opened your eyes to the need for that?
1: Well, I think we all lived through the pandemic and saw that no matter how well-intentioned you are, if you cannot communicate your intentions, then not only do you miss your audience, but those same statements can get twisted and warped and used against you. Hmm. I, I, I never thought I'd be in a position where I'm trying to convince people a disease actually exists but that was the challenge that we had throughout COVID. Not what to do about it, but that it even was a thing. And so I think we saw that, that public health needs to be better. We need to communicate better. I mean, Coke is like one of those ubiquitous things. Like you don't even say I want a Pepsi. You just say I want a Coke and then they tell you whether it's Coke or Pepsi. And so why then does Coke spend $4 billion every year and market it and communication? Like why don't they just stop and pocket that, give it to the, stock, to the, the stockholders? But if it's that important, that a ubiquitous project, that product still puts that much money, we need to think about how we're communicating about public health, when most people don't even know what it is. And so we wanna make sure that public health practitioners have the tools that they need to communicate their messages effectively. Because honestly, every public health person is just trying to help you live your optimal life, trying to fortify your community, trying to help people make the right decisions so they can live their best lives. And honestly, we're, we're also supporting the economy and thriving communities. But we've been warped into this nannyism that people think we are. And that's because those who seek to undermine public health do a far better job of communicating about public health than those who support it.
0: And you had seen this need before the pandemic. As I recall, the uh, Talking Health, this book is the latest resource from a program you created called Phrases. What does that stand for? What is what is Phrases focused on?
1: Phrases is public health reaching across sectors because uh, we get a whole class in public health school about acronyms. That's why everything's an acronym. in public <laughs> health. Uh, but what we knew is that at the time we did Phrases, everyone was talking about creating multi-sector partnerships. So, I'm not a public health apologist, Doug, so I'll I'll tell you what we don't do so well. What we do really well is we'll say, like, we're throwing the best party with the best DJs and the best food. What we don't do well is tell anyone when the party is or how to get there. So we like to put out these high-minded, we need better partnerships. We need to chase this new idea. but We don't tell anybody how to do it. Right. And so what's our phrases was there to do? Say, listen, if we need to create partnerships with with other groups that don't even know who we are, we need to have the messaging. We need to have the idea of when we say this, they hear that. And then how do we change our messaging? The fact that what we believe is this beautiful, good partnership. When we asked other sectors, they were like, partnership is hard. It means other people are in our space and we don't really like it. And it's Mm -hmm. like, huh. Well, that's going to be a little more difficult when we come in as, you know, we're public health, we're here to help you. And folks are like, yeah, we don't really want your help. So illuminating those challenges and then giving you practical tools to overcome them is what DeBeaumont's all about. Our founder, Pete DeBeaumont, made practical tools. And whether it was putting, you know, feet on a pole digger so that you could get a deeper drive into the earth, so you could you know, have a post go in deeper. That's a practical tool. He saw a problem, he made a tool, he gave it to people. We hold to that ideal even today at the DeBoma Foundation.
0: So the book Talking Health is the latest tool. Uh, let's talk about Talking Health. Who is the book for?
1: I think the book is ideally for people working in public health and figuring out how to talk to other people about health, but I think anyone can use it. I mean, you, right. you can read it before you go to Thanksgiving dinner and you have the inevitable, I don't think a mask mandate was ever necessary conversation with your conservative uh, relatives at the, at the dinner table. Politicians should read it. I mean, what can you do if you're not healthy, right? You can't go to work and be your best self. You can't have good grades in school, you can't graduate on time, you can't worship the way you want to worship unless you can really talk about how we get healthy in this country. And so talking health while really there for public health practitioners, it's a conversation everyone should be having, especially in the wake of losing a million American lives on American soil. And knowing that a lot of those lives, those are preventable deaths. And They're not here anymore. These are a million empty seats and empty tables because of the choices that we made and our inability to find unity and commonality in what was a common cause. And so it may seem like trivial to some that we're talking about the words, but words create our reality. Words matter and language is important. And while science and vaccines are important, I think what we saw in the pandemic is the best science can be undermined with dangerous communication and language. And so we need to get better by supporting good communication and language to make sure that the right science can get
0: to the right people. The book itself, Talking Health, is informed by science, communication science. You brought together some leading voices in health and communication, to quote the book cover. For folks who haven't seen it, who are some of the contributors they'll see in the book?
1: We have some amazing contributors. I think you're a contributor. uh, (laughs) Thank you. Kendall Taylor from Frameworks is a contributor. Soledad O'Brien, Karen DeSalvo, and... And our amazing team at DeBoma, Julia Haskins and Mark Miller, um, it was a it's a great opportunity for us to really use communication science, which public health people we know like epidemiologic science. But then, because we've always been resource starved, we tend to like do communications with our best intention. Right? We don't right. always have a communication scientist at a health department. Some health departments don't have public information offices. So. It's a real field, like it's a real science. And I think to bring those scientists and practitioners who know communications and give them a platform to share their knowledge with people who can apply it, I think makes this book special. And it's not its not a lot of theory. It's not a lot of esoteric conversation. It's about how do you talk to people about something that we all value, but we somehow can't. Find commonality on. Like I don't, I don't find a lot of people who reach out to me or t- meet me on the street and say, "Hey, Brian, I really want to see people unhealthy. It's my goal. Maybe tobacco. There's the tobacco people. <laughs> Besides them, I, I don't think many people are doing that. And so we have the shared value of health. We've kind of lost how to get there. So it's not mm-hmm. where we're going. It's how we're going to get there that is most important to us moving forward. And communication is a serious part of that.
0: The book's called Talking Health, A New Way to Communicate About Public Health. And you're right, the book has lots of insights and ideas and examples of communicating in ways that create common ground, that help people wrap their head around all this and see themselves in it. So let's share some insights right from the book. As you think of some of the lessons and tips, you know, what's one that comes to mind for you? I'd like to, to give folks a, a sneak peek.
1: I often have been trying to use the the metaphors that are in there about how do you talk about health? Because we talk about health in the book like like the foundation of your house. Because we don't really think a lot about the foundation of our house. Right? I, I fight with my wife about all sorts of things. The the drapes, the wallpaper, the furniture. <laughs> we don't ever talk about the foundation of the house. But when that foundation is cracked, everything else is in jeopardy. And right now That foundation is cracked societally. We're not healthy. We saw that. And and it's a litany of reasons, structural racism, unequal education opportunity, resources that people have. But if if you don't have that foundation, we're building on quicksand. That's what we, we can't do. And so I think that's important. What's even more important is I I think sometimes in public health, when we're engaging with media or the community, we're each trying to find our new cool analogy or that new sound bite. We need consistency. And the hardest part for all of us in public health is most people don't even know what public health is until they're adults. Uh, When you think about, I have a 10 and an 11. Oh, God. I have an 11 and a 13-year-old. And when they were kids, they got little doctor sets from Melissa and Doug. They got, you know, how to dress up and play teacher, how to be fire chief. You know, when my daughter got a doctor's kit from my father-in-law, who's a physician, we took away the stethoscope, gave her a, a pad, and had her do outbreak investigations amongst her kids, among her dogs. <laughs> and that taught her what epidemiology is and taught her what public health is. But most times, we don't even know. No one's really running around playing epidemiologist or public health administrator. <laughs> And so you don't even know, because in high school, most of your health class is washing your private bits and wearing a condom. But the idea that my kids growing up in my neighborhood have never seen a tobacco ad, because we live in a community that's constructed to give us optimal health. Mm. That's lost on everyone. We're not even acculturating people to the fact that our individual health is indelibly tied to our community health. And we now need to play catch up when people you know, are now adults and trying to figure out, well, why am I not healthy? I go to the doctor, sure, but you have a, a, a waste disposal site near you or you don't have any place to walk or you don't have paid sick leave. That's what health, that's what health is about.
0: And back to the book, the uh, use of metaphor is well-established in cognitive science as a very powerful tool for communication because it connects to something people know is important, like the foundation of your house, that they can then translate to something they don't know, like public health. That's great. What's another one? Is there another tip or trick or insight that comes to mind? a
1: lot of the, the, I think this is particularly important for public health folk. Looking at what we say and what people hear and mm. understanding that translation is so important because, you know, listen, we all get into public health because we're doing, you know, good work, what we always view as a universal good. But that's not how people always hear, right? We believe that the good of what we're talking about will carry the day. We went into public health because we didn't want to be salespeople. And that's like the biggest fallacy there is. <laughs> we have to be better salespeople because, listen, if you're selling Mercedes, you got a pretty good pro- product that like everyone culturally wants. Like, oh, cool Mercedes. We have to be better salespeople because we're selling the thing that you don't really know that you have or need or use every day. And so understanding how people hear us and really understand and operationalize our messaging is critically important. And just because we think it's a good idea and we know it's a good idea and we have the public health science behind it, we have to communicate it, right? And we're used to just doing reports and, you know, writing opinion pieces. And But, you know, if you write a report and no one reads it, did you really write a report at all? And this is a whole different world of social media and Instagram and TikTok. And, you know, I think we missed a huge opportunity during the pandemic. Um, My kids watch SS Sniper Wolf, a a YouTuber has more than, I don't know, a million and a half followers. And all she does is react to other people's videos. You know what she talked a lot about was masking. And why can't this person just wear a mask? Or here's a video of a Karen yelling about not wearing a mask. Wear the mask, Karen. And I was like, why are we not finding a way to use her platform to reinforce what she's already doing, which is delivering public health messages? But she doesn't think of herself as some public health champion. She was just reacting to what was obvious to her. Mm. We're in a pandemic. You should wear a mask. But we didn't even figure out how to operationalize that energy. And so what what I hope the book does is start helping us think about the best product with the worst marketing goes bankrupt every day. We have the good stuff. I have the stuff that can make you healthier, that can help your family, that will help your business, and it'll help your community. So what frustrates me is I have the stuff. I have the mots, Right. And I need to get you to buy it, you to, to really want to engage in this public health conversation. And we failed at that for a long time. Talking health hopefully starts the conversation where we can really begin to talk about the shared value and how we get there.
0: And echoing a point you made, I was just looking at Chapter 5, How to Tell Impactful Stories, lead author Soledad O'Brien, who says, tell your story again and again. Public health professionals begin at a disadvantage when telling stories because the field isn't well understood, what you just said. Be prepared to repeat your stories as obvious as they may seem to you. Chances are your audience will be surprised to learn about the scale and scope of the public health workforce.
1: If there's one thing we can get out of the book, we're halfway there in our in our what I think is the change equation. Excellent data and great stories equal power. Power equals change. We have excellent data, but we often deliver it in very dry, unentertaining ways. Data doesn't have an ability to stick with people the way stories do. You can all of us, anybody listening, you can think back to a sitcom you watched 10 years ago and almost like bring that whole episode of that sitcom into your brain. But do you really remember what the joblessness rate was when it was last introduced? Because you don't – data doesn't have that that stickiness right. that stories do. And so really telling data-driven stories is a skill. It's not something you can just like, hey, you. everybody tells us using a story. No, that's an actual skill. You wouldn't send a cardiologist out and go, yeah, go do a bypass. Like, I don't know, just kind of move some stuff. It's like a real thing, just like data-driven storytelling and doing it in a real way that allows us to zoom in and zoom out and talk about the policy issues and help people feel less helpless about changing things. I mean, this is a really hard time for Americans There are some giant issues like how do you deal with inflation and health equity and structural racism? You have to find footholds in there so that we can get to the change that we want. And those footholds are often those stories
0: that we can hold on to. For those who are new to this idea, and the book does go into the science of this, as you've referenced, that since humans have had the capacity for language, we've learned our language and our values and how the world works through stories, and thus our brains are kind of primed to learn that way. So bringing in stories that put people in the picture, confronting problems, finding solutions, which is essentially what stories are about, can help people learn and understand as well as care about the topic. So for those um, who are wondering, what are you talking about with all this storytelling? What's an example? What's an example of a simple story in about from related to public health that you think um, is an example of the kind of storytelling people can do for those who are trying to wrap their head around this?
1: So there are times when I'll, I'll tell a story about an employee, right, at a business, especially when I'm talking to, to business leaders. And this is a great employee. They've, they've done amazing work. They take advantage of all the workplace wellness offerings. And you like them so much that, that you promote this employee. And because you promoted the employee, they were able to move from the apartment building that they were in, that was maybe a one-bedroom apartment that was with him and his daughter, and they were able to move to a nice two-bedroom apartment. Their daughter had, like, you know, a room for the first time. It's because he worked hard, and he committed himself to to working at that business. But then all of a sudden, he starts calling out. When he's at work, he's not as attentive. All of a sudden, his his performance starts going down. And what you don't know as the business owner or the manager, what, what you don't know, it's because in that new apartment, there's, there's an, an asthma trigger for his daughter, and so she's in the ER because she has an asthma attack that won't break, that won't stop. He's having to follow up with her pediatrician. He's trying to call the landlord to figure out what they can do to make this apartment healthier for his daughter. And see, if the business had just been a champion of proactive rental inspection— in the community, it would have benefited that employee because eventually they fired him. And so they lost all that investment in him all because a property owner allowed disrepair with the apartment building here, the apartment he was living in. And it allows us in that story to tie a very complex policy issue, which is proactive rental inspection to the business. And and I'm passionate, especially about Productive Rail Inspection, because I actually lived it. When we moved to D.C., we rented. And there was all of a sudden this like sag in our kitchen floor Um, and it became like a hole. And my daughter was getting sick. And and here I am, I'm a, a white male who had, you know, pretty good privilege. I called the landlord and I said, you need to fix this. And he said, no, it's aesthetics. I said, it's not aesthetics. This is really, this is about the, the safety of my home. And I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to not, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sue you. And he said, well, that's fine. We have a lot of lawyers. And I said, okay, well, then I'm not going to pay rent. He goes, fine. Those lawyers, they'll sue you. Someone knocked at my door and it was a rental inspector from Rockville, Maryland, where I live. i was mm. like, what are you doing here? Like we're going inve- to we're going to inspect the house. And I was like, let me show you this hole in my kitchen floor. It was fixed the next day. Wow. And so for me, as a a person who does experience a fair bit of privilege, if I couldn't get that fixed, what is the chances of those who enjoy less privilege than I? And so, again, I think these stories connect with people. That's what we need to do. And then I can give you once you're interested, once I hook you in, then I can give you all the data you want. Uh-huh. like proactive rental inspection another good one is is you know great stories about early pre-k right early pre-k is like having a cure for cancer that we just don't give people and just that line in itself how do you communicate the urgency of pre-k I will always talk about pre-k as a cure for cancer we've chosen not to give people when you look at the data of of early pre-k it helps with learning gaps it helps reduce disparities it helps with future, outcomes for for kids and we just don't have the political will to do it so that's the language that we need to help motivate and and compel people to act because here Doug here's the great I'll give you the greatest secret we have we know how to fix every single social problem we have we lack the political will to do so so instead of doing another randomized control trial on how to get someone into housing, Let's use our language and our common purpose to build houses for people that are affordable. Get Let's get to solutions and not bury everything in a committee or a research project. That's the challenge of our time,
0: is how to act and no longer just think and explore. Well, you are a natural <laughs> at public health communication. And one of the leading advocates for the field, clearly, at a time when public health has come under a lot of scrutiny, let's let's end the conversation with a piece of advice for other leaders who want to do their part to build support for public health, who aren't in a position like yours, but get it right and want to be helpful. What's something they can do?
1: I think our public health leaders have to realize that that these jobs are political. They're not partisan, mm-hmm. they are political. And that means we have to nurture our base. And so as the pandemic started to wane, you heard a lot of people say, oh, now I don't have to do those Instagram Lives or the Facebook Lives anymore. No, you have to do them more, right? We, we didn't have the credibility and the trust of the community to have them strongly back some of the recommendations like closing schools or closing businesses. This was the first time they ever saw the public health director's face. Right, And more importantly, when people came for health directors and said, you know, we're gonna fire you because we don't like your science. Those health directors were often alone in those city council hearings. What we needed was the business community and the faith community and school leaders to say, listen, whether you agree with the science or not, the science is fact, and leave our health commissioner alone. You all make your policy decisions, but don't look to subjugate science to partisanship. But if you don't know someone, if you've not built the relationship, then how do you expect them to come to your aid when you need them? And so I want health commissioners and public health leaders to like never be seen at the health department because they're out meeting with the Chamber of Commerce, with businesses, with schools, with, you know, I, I once did a focus group um, where Chris Christie was there, and this was after he had run for president. And- Governor
0: of New Jersey at the time?
1: No, it was he that he moved on from New Jersey. This was after. This was during COVID. Okay. We were trying to convince people, you know, really target messaging to Republicans, and he was helping us in this focus group. and And he was masterful. His communication style. It was you were sitting with Chris Christie in a New Jersey diner. While he was drinking coffee and telling you facts, he told this story about how he got COVID and another person got COVID, but that person was thin and healthy. And you know who was really sick? That person was really sick. Wouldn't you think it was going to be him? He's not in shape. And it was amazing. He wove those stories. We have to be like someone right after the focus group said that was the Chris Christie that every Democrat political strategist feared when he ran for good for president. He just had this way of connecting with people. We have to, and and his politics aside, the way he made people feel connected to him, that he heard them and that he could share these stories. We need every public health leader in every coffee shop in America to at least have the conversation and listen, we're going to find people we don't agree with. But there's a lot more to be said sitting across a cup of coffee from someone saying, you know what? I don't agree with you, but I'm glad we've had the chance to hear each other. You know, you'll get further with that than if they'd never heard of you know from you directly at all. So I think that's communications has to become as critical to our public health practice as epidemiology. Mm. That's the challenge in the next you know decades of public health practice to come.
0: And your examples there are a good lesson that communication isn't just about putting out the message. It's about connecting with people, having conversations, building relationships across sectors, as you said.
1: It, it has to be done because we, we know that throughout this pandemic, the president of the Chamber of Commerce met the health commissioner for the very first time. They introduced themselves. And then the health commissioner said, Oh, by the way, I'm issuing a stay-at-home order. We're closing all the businesses in the county. I don't care how you slice it. That's a bad first date. (laughs) No one is swiping right on public health at that point because they weren't, we didn't make the community part of the decision. Mm -hmm. We didn't create those tables where we could discuss why we're doing it and what the limitations were and what the drivers were and how we'd get out of this. We have to think about that more going forward. Public health is a team sport. And our health commissioners in every local health jurisdiction in this nation, they're our quarterback. And we need them rallying the team because it's like the Patriots being down in that Super Bowl 28 to 3 against the Falcons. They rallied and beat the Falcons because their quarterback was on point and rallied that group. And I think we have to do a very similar thing and think similarly with public health. But it's going to take a lot of work to build community trust, multi-sector trust, and that rests with our ability to communicate effectively moving forward.
0: Well, Brian, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners and your great examples of metaphors and stories and catchy messaging. Uh, And thanks to you and the De Beaumont Foundation for for all you've done to provide these resources to the field and to the world. Listeners, you can get the book at talkinghealthbook.org. That's all for this edition of Achieve Great Things.